Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The COVID-19 pandemic has been one of the most important historical events of our lifetime. And we still don't know how it started two years ago. Did the virus spill over to humans from some animal in nature? Or could it have accidentally leaked from a research lab in Wuhan, China? The answer remains a mystery. Even worse, the initial efforts to explore this question were met with stonewalling and obfuscation on the part of some leading scientists and public officials. Those who raised the possibility of the lab leak were tarred as conspiracy theorists. Understanding how COVID-19 started with Alina Chan. Part one of our two-part conversation. To this day, no definitive evidence, so no smoking gun for any scenario. There's just a lot of smoke. If you were raising the lab leak hypothesis, you were a conspiracy theorist, you were racist, you were anti-China, you were anti-science, you know, just a whole bunch of labels being thrown onto people who just wanted to ask a very reasonable question. Could this virus have leaked from a lab that was in that city? Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Jim... A big reason for doing this episode is that for at least the past year and a half, you have been writing about and following the debate over the search for the origin of COVID-19. Now, why is that important? Well, if we're going to stop future pandemics, we have to get a clear answer to the origin story. Before our interview, give us some background into this and what you found. Early in the pandemic, people loaded this whole question with all kinds of politics early on on both sides. But it seemed like the whole scientific establishment was in agreement that we shouldn't even discuss this lab leak possibility. And then I found one young scientist on Twitter who kept raising fascinating questions. Her name is Alina Chan, and she's a postdoctoral researcher at the Broad Institute. That's a medical research center associated with both Harvard and MIT. And what were a few of her insights? Early on, she and a couple of colleagues looked into the genome of SARS-CoV-2. That's the, the virus that causes COVID-19. Usually when a new virus gets into a human population from an animal source, it evolves quickly as it adapts to its new host. But Chan and her colleagues found out that 
it wasn't evolving as fast as you would expect. It appeared, quote, pre-adapted to human transmission, they wrote. This is like a detective mystery, Jim. If the virus was pre-adapted, where could that have come from? SARS-CoV-2 is similar to other coronaviruses that are found in certain bats in Asia. A lot of people remember nearly 20 years ago, we had the original SARS outbreak. But the bats that carry viruses that are similar to SARS-CoV-2 don't live anywhere near Wuhan where the outbreak started. But Wuhan does have the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a state-of-the-art lab that specializes in Chinese bat viruses. So the Wuhan lab might well be linked to the outbreak of coronavirus, but when politicians and others raised questions, they faced a ton of resistance. Fortunately, Alina Chan and a few other researchers kept pushing and uncovering some fascinating evidence. And eventually, after about a year, they did get the scientific establishment to become more open to looking into the lab leak possibility. Now, Alina Chan has co-written Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. Her co-author on the book is British science author Matt Ridley, who, as you recall, is a former guest on How Do We Fix It? So let's bring in Dr. Alina Chan. Thanks for having me on the podcast. The pandemic began nearly two years ago. How is it that we still don't know where it came from? Well, there hasn't been an actual investigation. So if we don't investigate, how could we possibly know? Uh, and there has also been great difficulty in trying to get access to key uh, whistleblowers, to, to people who, who saw what was happening, and, and to access to early samples, uh, contact tracing information. So you, you name it, that there are a ton of things that we have not gained access to. Let's discuss the two main theories about the origins of the pandemic. One is that COVID-19 spread from nature, jumping from a species of animals to humans. The other is that it might have come from a lab and was the result of an accident. So in the natural origin scenario category, we have a few options. It usually involves a person being exposed to an animal that is infected by the virus. So it could be a bat in a cave or it could be animals in the wildlife trade, for example, civets or raccoon dogs that are being sold and then consumed in some parts of China. So by being exposed to these animals infected with viruses, you might catch them. And this happens quite a bit with different viruses around the world. So that is the natural origin scenario. For the lab origin scenario, there are, again, that's a spectrum of different uh, uh, many scenarios that could be plausible. So for example, scientists often go to these markets and, and caves and sample tens of thousands of animals looking for novel pathogens. So during that process, especially when they're not wearing proper uh, personal protective equipment, they might get exposed or they might inhale air uh, that's full of bad guano and be exposed to pathogens during the sampling process. The activity leading to the emergence of the pathogen is related to lab or research activity. So the more extreme forms of a lab origin include taking those viruses from animals in nature back to the lab, growing up the viruses, possibly even introducing genetic modifications, testing these viruses in different cells in the lab, including human lung cells, for example, or even humanized animals like uh, mice that express the human ACE2 receptor that both SARS-1 and SARS-2 use to infect human cells, or even civet cats or bats in the lab. So 
any of these processes could accidentally expose a lab personnel to these viruses. So there are two scenarios. There's natural origins and the possibility of a lab leak. Um, and you say it's not clear still uh, what the cause was, whether it's one or the other, right? Yes. So to this day, no definitive evidence. So no smoking gun for any scenario. There's just a lot of smoke, a lot of circumstantial evidence for both natural as well as lab origin. So there's no denying it that one of the earliest clusters of COVID cases in Wuhan was linked to a seafood market. So we know that there was some small number of wild animals sold there. Uh, so we have to investigate. The question is, why haven't they been investigated? Why have the investigations in China turned up all empty despite testing tens of thousands of animal samples? Why did they shut down the farms in South China that supplied these Wuhan markets without testing them? And similarly for the lab origin scenario, there's a whole ton of circumstantial evidence, right? So we know that the lab there was collecting tens of thousands of samples from high-risk animals and humans from across eight countries. And so they were taking these viruses, growing them, synthesizing them, cloning them, making genetic modifications in them. And it's very reasonable to think that it could have possibly led to the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan city. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology was one of the world's top locations, maybe the top location for collecting this enormous range of, of viruses from Asia that might be suspected as, as having pathogenic possibility. And yet a lot of people early on said, oh, come on, it's impossible for something to leak out of the Wuhan lab. It's very high tech. It's very secure. It's biosafety level four. Uh, can you explain what that means and why those people might have been exaggerating the level of safety? So one point to bring up is that the first SARS virus, when it was studied in laboratories around the world, it actually escaped from a top biosafety, biosecurity lab, a BSL-4 lab once, so that we know of. This was back in 2003? Yes, almost two decades ago now. So uh, it was a, a BSL-4 lab in Taiwan where a researcher was working with a patient sample of SARS virus. And due to human error, so nothing to do with the infrastructure or the protocols, but due to human error, he got infected and he went on an international conference. So he flew to Singapore and then he came back again on an international flight. And fortunately, he only developed symptoms after he landed back in Taiwan. So if the trip had been just one day off and he developed symptoms while on the plane or at the conference, he would have given it to how many, like dozens possibly of researchers and, and participants who have all flown back to each of their countries. And there are different levels of biosafety at Wuhan and other research labs? Biosafety level four, BSL-4 is the highest level. Uh, but we know that the research in Wuhan, where they were handling SARS-like viruses, was only done at BSL-2 and 3. So at, especially at BSL-2, if you're working with these live recombinant viruses uh, collected from animals and humans even, this is not appropriate for an airborne virus. If you work with hundreds of these, one day you might get very unlucky. And the biosafety level two, people often say, is about what you would experience in your dentist's office? In some ways, it's safer, and in some ways, it's less safe than the dental office. So you sometimes only have to wear a mask. So if, if someone decides not to wear a mask, it's no big deal. Uh, so your lowest level of protection could literally just be gloves. So you would be protected from SARS-like viruses with gloves. 
What are some of the ways that a pathogen can leak out of a lab? Does this sort of thing happen often? Yes, yeah, so lab escapes are not infrequent and they are not unexpected, especially as we scale up to hundreds of different laboratories around the world, all working with these pathogens or collecting new pathogens. So sometimes it's just about human error and even even machines make mistakes, right? Like when you when you have your printer or your fax machine and it just craps out and <laughs> refuses to do anything. Like even, even machines make mistakes. So humans, we make mistakes too. No matter how well-trained you are, you might have a bad day or you might forget to do one thing. So in previous cases of lab escape pathogens, for example, there was even one in 2019, just as COVID was unfolding as well, is that a vaccine factory used expired disinfectant. So they didn't realize that the disinfectant they were using was expired. And as a result, these bacterial spores blew all over the city and ultimately infected thousands of people. And there is also the notorious case of an anthrax leak in the Soviet Union that was the result of human error in 1979 in the city of Sverdlovsk. That leak killed dozens of people. It was from a military lab, and for years, officials lied about what happened. At the time, they blamed it on contaminated meat. But decades later, once it was safe enough for a whistleblower to say something, someone actually came forward and said, actually, our records, we, we, we knew at the time and we recorded this, that actually it was just one person. He went in to repair the building or something, and he forgot to replace an air filter. And as a result, those anthrax spores also blew over the city, thankfully in, in the direction of a less populated part of the city, because if it blew in the other way, it would have killed potentially hundreds of thousands of people. One question, you mentioned it a little bit in passing, is that not only were they handling all these viruses, but some of the research might have involved modifying certain viruses in various ways that that had the potential of maybe making them more infectious to human cells. Can you explain how that works? So there are a lot of researchers, even today, who are still conducting the type of research where you collect many novel specimens from nature, from, from caves, from the wildlife trade, even from people living in rural, rural areas who tend to be exposed to these novel pathogens. And you bring them back to the lab. And to understand how these novel viruses work and to estimate how much of a risk they are, to uh, spilling over into humans and causing outbreaks, you, you kind of need to take them apart or to grow them up in the lab and, and study them in different cell and animal models to see, can it make the cells sick or can it make the animals sick? So in situations when you cannot grow a virus in the lab, when you cannot isolate and culture it in the lab, then you might want to clone parts of it into other viruses that you can grow in the lab. So there's this practice of making recombinant viruses and in some cases, you might accidentally create a pathogen that has the potential to cause a pandemic. So I'd say that this is extremely rare. And again, just emphasize that the scientists doing this work, they're not doing this recklessly. They're not doing this with bad intentions. They literally want to understand how novel pathogens might be a threat to human beings. And so the question that we have today is how do we make that work more transparent? So how do we make sure that public stakeholders are aware of what type of research is happening in their backyard? How do we make sure that we can detect outbreaks or lab escapes as quickly as possible? How can we 
better estimate the risk of lab escapes and to put in safety measures that can dramatically reduce those risks. And if safety steps aren't properly taken, this work can be extremely dangerous. Yes. A, an unmodified virus might have leaked in one of several ways or a virus that had been modified to be more and become more infectious might have leaked. But in China, the official explanation is still that the virus emerged in that wet market uh, from some kind of uh, uh, animal host. Is that still a plausible explanation? Yes. So a natural origin of SARS-CoV-2 is still on the table. It's still plausible. It deserves to be properly investigated. But the research in the wet market hasn't turned up much sign of any particular animal that might have been uh, a, a natural host for the virus, right? Yeah. And there's even a study that was published, I think, last week. It did a 2017 till today uh, survey of the wildlife trade in China across something like 2,500 animal samples, 1,700 animals, uh, 344 sites across China, including natural habitats like markets and, and zoos. And, and they found zero traces of any SARS or SARS-2-like virus. So they found a ton of other viruses and coronaviruses, but they didn't find any SARS-like viruses in the animals. So I would say that the link between SARS-CoV-2 and the wildlife trade is pretty tenuous. Like it needs it needs to be backed up by more evidence. So obviously there was a super spreader event at the Huanan Seafood Market in Wuhan, but these super spreader events happen in lots of markets, even in places where there's no wildlife trade. And we had you know, super spreader events at academic conferences, on cruises, uh, at weddings and funerals. It doesn't mean that there are sick animals there. So these coronavirus super spreader events involve people spreading the virus to other humans. A human person brought the virus to these events and, and because the virus spreads through the air, it's really quick. You can infect like hundreds of people within an hour. So is it unusual that it would take so long to find uh, a possible animal host for this virus? I'd say that it depends very much on the circumstance and which era this pathogen emerged. So we shouldn't be comparing HIV and SARS-CoV-2. It emerged in two different centuries and the technological capabilities we have today are just like people in the past couldn't even imagine it. They couldn't even imagine that you could sequence a completely novel pathogen in two days. So we can't use this HIV or Ebola as a standard of comparison for, for a SARS-like virus that emerged in a city where you have the world's foremost expertise in tracking SARS outbreaks and a place where the government has near complete like uh, ability to go into anyone's lives and get all the data they need. So what is stopping them from finding this animal source? We've been talking for a while now about the potential sources for uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, some people say that doesn't really matter, that it's all ancient history. Why are they wrong? Why is it important for us to know what the source of coronavirus is? So there are three reasons for this. One is to develop an informed strategy to prevent future pandemics. The second reason is about setting a precedent. So we need to show that we can investigate novel outbreaks and that we can hold people accountable. We need to show that we are able to investigate so that 
we can protect against massive loss of life. And the last reason is about a human resolution. So we've all been impacted in some way by this pandemic. And a lot of people who have lost people or, or you know, suffered greatly, have long COVID or very severe COVID, like one, one of the top questions for them is why is this happening? And, and how did this happen? So, so people want answers. It's not something we can just sleep on it and forget about it, like pretend this pandemic never happened and <laughs> wait for the next one to happen. You're listening to How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Dr. Alina Chan, who is the co-author of the new book, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. Before we go back to our interview, a quick explanation for what we're going to be hearing about next. And that involves a group called EcoHealth Alliance. Right. EcoHealth Alliance is the main group that helps distribute grant money to virology researchers around the world. It's led by a guy named Peter Dejak, who was a key player in funneling this money around to researchers around the world and also in organizing the resistance to the idea that there might have been a leak from the Wuhan lab. So this is a, has been a, a major bone of contention since the earliest days of the pandemic. And Alina Chan was right in the middle of it. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Peter Dejak, the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, organized other scientists to condemn the lab leak hypothesis in a famous letter to the Lancet Medical Journal. But when he put together that letter that really dissuaded a lot of people from even looking into this or discussing the, the lab leak possibility, when he did that, there was a lot he wasn't telling us about his, uh, mm -hmm. his involvement. Yeah, so if you look at that Lancet letter that was published in February of 2020, barely a month, after the genome of the virus had just been put online. And then you look at the, the second version of that letter that was published in July of this year, and you compare the declaration of interest, you see that the first letter says we have no interest to declare. And the second letter has one that spans almost an entire page telling you all of the competing interests of all of the uh, authors on, this, on the, same, the same set of authors on, on these two letters. And in the case of the EcoHealth Alliance, what was what were some of those interests? So the EcoHealth Alliance is a longtime collaborator and funder 
of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where it suspected that SARS-CoV-2 might have emerged from, whether it was a natural virus that they collected or whether it was something that they might have slightly modified. So imagine for the Equal Health Alliance, they've given money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. What happens if it's found that this virus comes from that lab? It would cast the Equal Health Alliance in a very bad light because in trying to prevent a pandemic, they actually led to an accident that caused a pandemic. So I would say that it's in their ultimate interest to make sure that this virus came from the wildlife trade and not from a lab. So how can you think that this is not a competing interest and not declare it? Um, I, I think it, it was a failure of scientific integrity. It took more than 12 months after the first known outbreak of COVID-19 in Wuhan for a team of international scientists to be allowed in by China to ask questions about the origins of the pandemic. The WHO, the World Health Organization, organized the team. What happened with that? So the World Health Organization had been begging China to let them in as soon as this pandemic started, they really wanted to go in and start investigating and also to understand what's happening on the ground, right? So we had very delayed information coming out of China and, and through the WHO. Things like, was this human-to-human -human transmissible? They tried to maintain even up till like the second to last week in January that this virus was not human-to-human -human transmissible or that there was no evidence of it, even though we know now that they had that evidence as early as December 2019. And then more of these things like, did it come from the market? Like, were there any animal samples on the market? So all these information were very slow to be released from China to the WHO out to the rest of the world. So the WHO tried really hard and they finally managed to negotiate that they would send a small team of experts to China to investigate the origin or to study the origin. So they actually say that they never had the power or mandate to to do an investigation. They called it some, some type of collaborative process of exploration. Uh, so they, they finally negotiated one and it was one year after. So they only got to go in in January of this year, 2021. And uh, the team membership had to be approved by China. The, whatever they did there had to be approved by China. They landed with quarantine for two weeks. And then for two weeks, they got driven around to wherever uh, China wanted them to to be driven to. So they took a look at a museum that was ce celebrating how well China had uh, contained this pandemic. They, they went to a frozen storage area to see all the frozen goods that were sent to China. Uh, and the reason for that was because they, <laughs> they wanted to see whether it was possible for this virus to have emerged not from China, but through a frozen import that was sent to China, thereby completely removing any blame for the pandemic from China. So after that process, this international team uh, deliberated with the Chinese half of the team. Chinese half of the team was the only side that got to see the data. And they co-signed a final report that said that they thought an intermediate host was most likely, but they thought that a cold chain origin, a frozen import origin was more likely than a lab origin. So they basically put the lab origin all the way at the bottom of that report. And according to the team leader, it almost didn't even make it into the report. <laughs> and and were, the, were the independent investigators able to question anybody from uh, the virology lab in, in Wuhan, the institute? They were constantly under supervision and chaperones around town. There was always government like officials in the room. And they did make a trip to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, like a 
two or three hour trip and they showed them around their top biosecurity lab. But that wasn't where the SARS-like virus work had been done. Remember, they had done this work at much lower biosafety levels. So they, they sent the team up to these top biosafety labs and said, look how great it is here. So nothing could escape from here, right? But actually, the work wasn't done there. And their, their process of determining whether the lab leak hypothesis was plausible was the team asked them, did you audit yourself? And the lab said, yeah, we audited ourselves. And they said, so did you find any presence of SARS-2? And they said, no. <laughs> And then they all voted and then they said, yep, it looks extremely unlikely that it came from here. So that was the extent of the study. Over the last 18 months or so, we've learned a lot more about what sorts of research was was going on in the Wuhan lab. Uh, some of it funded via EcoHealth Alliance, which is distributing grants that in some cases originally came from the U.S. Uh, National Institutes of Health. But the information that's coming out hasn't mostly come from leading public health organizations, not the World Health Organization, not the NIH, or even some of the leading scientists in the field. A lot of it's coming from from independent scientists like you, uh, some journalists often working kind of outside of the mainstream and independent researchers around uh, all over the world. So we have to walk back to early 2020. This was when the lab origin hypothesis had been cast as a conspiracy theory. So we had all these uh, major social media or online platforms completely censoring or banning any discussion of a lab origin of SARS-CoV-2. So Twitter was the only place. And that's where a lot of people who refused to abandon their critical thinking. <laughs> you just said Twitter was the only place? Yes. I, th I think Facebook allowed some of it, but it was pretty quick to, to scrub uh, posts or, or messages even discussing a lab origin. Even a lab accident had to be scrubbed. So I'd say that the mindset at the time was that if you were raising the lab leak hypothesis, you were a conspiracy theorist, you were racist, you were anti-China, you were anti-science, <laughs> you know, just a whole bunch of labels being thrown onto people who just wanted to ask a very reasonable question, could this virus have leaked from a lab that was in that city? So on Twitter, all these individuals from all around the globe, like India, uh, Scandinavia, like Austria, in Asia as well, um, and in the US and UK, they, they all found each other on Twitter just, just by asking this question, could this virus have come from a lab? And they weren't satisfied with the answers that were being given to them by the mainstream media and so they they started sleuthing like they just went for any piece of information archived online and news reports putting details together and they found that unfortunately some scientists a very small handful of scientists were not being very forthcoming about details that they knew uh, when SARS-CoV-2 emerged. Alina Chan speaking with Jim and I about her research into the origins of COVID-19, how it was first spread. We'll have more with her, the solutions part of this story, in our next episode of How Do We Fix It? Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Davies Content makes this podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.